electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A November to remember from semis to small caps to regional banks and beyond. It's been an off-the-chart month for the stocks. Uh, so does Santa make its deliveries early for investors or are more happy returns coming down the chimney? Mm. Plus new drama at Disney. Activist Nelson Peltz once again seeking seats on the board. Will this battle end up being decided by a proxy fight or will Iger give in this time? A live report just minutes away. And later, new high for Salesforce in the back of earnings, a pair of social stocks surging higher, and a record-breaking month for oil producers here in the U.S. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, Karen Feiderman, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Tim Seymour. We start off with the market surge, the Dow jumping 520 points today, closing near its highs of the day, hitting a 52-week high on its final day of the month. Lower than expected inflation numbers and Salesforce's strong results contributing to these gains. The S&P 500 also higher, the NASDAQ climbing back from a triple de- uh, point uh, de- deficit to end the near day near the flat line. Today's rally securing a November to remember for the month. The Nasdaq surging 10 percent, the S&P and Dow climbing more than 8 percent. Beyond the major averages, semis up 15 percent, regional banks soaring 14 percent, small caps up 9 percent, the 10-year Treasury yield plunging more than 40 basis points to, to 4.3 percent. So, what happens next year as we kick off the final month of the year? And as a lot of Fed officials have signaled that it's likely that the last rate hike is behind this guy. I agree with that. I think it probably is. And if you've been long stocks, congratulations. A lot of people on this desk, I mean, even Dan has talked about Qs and Twos, Karen and Tim. I have not been bullish, and I'm not bullish now. But I understand sort of what's going on. And the, the end five minutes of the day, that markup in the month end is almost comical But it comes in the face of 18, 19 months now of leading economic indicators deteriorating, a job market that's seemingly wavering here. So the data's getting worse while the market's getting better. And I totally understand, so don't at me. I get that the stock market is not the same as the economy. I understand that intuitively. What I have trouble with is now the gap between the two of them is seemingly growing every day. But is there really like a dichotomy or or something that needs to be reckoned with because we're seeing the slowdown. That's exactly what the Fed wanted, but we're not falling off the cliff. And that's exactly what stocks want. It's it's sticking the landing. So have we stuck the landing? You're going to say no. Yeah. But you know, I always say, you know, a strug, yeah. carry strug kind of landing. <laughs> right. Not the most elegant, but nonetheless got the job done. I mean, we won't ever know that we, we missed a recession until, right, eventually there will be one at some point. People say, well, that's the recession I was calling for. So, I mean, it does seem a little Goldilocks, which is a little scary, right? You have data that just a tiny bit cool, yet earnings that are good, and the Fed being sort of, you know, out of commission for now. That's a great setup. And then you got a lot of chasing into year end. I, I, the last, I don't know, 20 minutes of the market were just a, just a, a melt up of kind of ridiculousness. CRM was up, I don't know, 10, 9 something. So, uh, that could easily be reversed. But I think there's still some momentum going into year end. Who knows for next year? Um, this this means just kind of chasing. I don't think things have fundamentally changed very much. 
Yeah, here's the good news, right? If you are long and you've caught this rally, and by the way, guy, you're, you're way too nice. Um, you, you know, I, I was not constructive on stocks. Over the last month and a half, I really thought when we were down 10% in the S&P 500 from those July highs, I thought there was a good opportunity for a washout. I think there was good, like to me, I wanted to see it get overdone. I didn't think down 10% from those highs was really overdone. And it was led by a lot of the names that had gotten us there, the mega cap tech stocks. And I really thought going into Q3 earnings season, um, we might have a final push lower that would start to discount, not too different than last October when things got a bit overdone to the downside. It didn't happen. Caught me way off guard. The one thing I'll just say here, and this is what I say, if you are long and you caught this rally, a 13 VIX is kind of giving you the opportunity to stick with the stuff if you're inclined to basically buy protection, do stock replacement, that sort of thing. And again, who knows what's going to happen over the next week or two. This felt a little unnatural over the last week and a half or so. I'll just say this, though, if you ask, like, what's going to happen next year? I look at the equal weight S&P. It's up 5% on the year versus an S&P, that, that, you know, market cap weight, that's up 18%. I look at the Russell 2000. I mean, it's up 2.5%. It's, you know, and it's down 10% from this year's highs. It's down you know, 25% from its 2021 highs. So there's parts of the stock market that are saying something different about the economy, different than what I think the market cap weighted S&P does. And I know we could do shows and specials and all this sort of stuff on that. At some point, that will matter at you know what I mean? In 2024, if the promise of AI, if, if all this stuff doesn't really turn into, you know, profits that justify an S&P trading at 20 times, which is definitely very heavily weighted towards those top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. But if we've seen the peak in rates, Tim, then why can't the Russell 2000 find some footing here and continue to rally? I mean, a lot of a lot of sectors were worried about the impact of the Fed rate hikes. And if we've seen the worst of it in terms of where rates are going to go, then we should have some some fuel for, for these parts of the market. Well, I'm, I'm not sure we've seen the the high in rates, but I, I do think we've seen the Fed uh, max out in terms of what they're going to do at the short end of, of the yield curve and Fed funds. Um, and. I, I think if you, you know, as everyone has said here, uh, it was kind of a tale also of two different months in November. So you had the first half of the month to me was really all about the leadership. It was all about what got us here. It was all uh, about, uh, I, I think, a dynamic where um, it was defensive moves higher by, you know, by those leaders. But when you look at the CPI number of November 14th, since that point, you've seen that equal weighted S&P really outperform. And that was a CPI number uh, that I didn't think was going to move the markets. And frankly, I think it's the most important thing that happened during the month. Other than uh, a couple days ago when the Fed's Waller, who's been one of the more hawkish members of the voting Fed, um, pretty much acknowledged that that uh, not only is. Well, I've obviously had <laughs> difficulty with Tim. I'm sure he's still talking somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but let's let's. Yeah. yeah we were, well, just one thing I wanted uh, to add, though, I did think the, the uh, activity today out of the Nasdaq, mm-hmm. right out of the Magnificent yeah. Seven. Seeing other things starting to catch a bid, right? We see banks have had a bid recently. The IWM, which a month ago was 10% lower. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a month ago. Yeah, about three, a month ago, let's say, 10% lower. So maybe this rotation that I've sort of long been expecting maybe it's upon us because some of those are getting... Yeah, but the, the, the Russell is, is like, okay, Microsoft or Apple's market cap is greater than the Russell 2000. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, like, just think about that, right? So there's 2,000 stocks in that index of, you know, small cap stock. So, like, to me, 
you know, not, it's more interesting to me about what investors are saying about small caps and their opportunity to do well in this economic environment. Like, that's my two cents there. So, like, I don't really think that's significant. And then you think, okay, so money's going to move back into the banks. If the money center banks were really hurt when rates went from, you know, 4% in the 10-year to 5% in a very short period of time, and those stocks were making new 52-week lows, and many of the large money centers were making new lows, obviously, to their SVB lows from March. So, okay, you get a snap back there. But that's not a leadership that's going to work. Energy hasn't worked for a whole host of reasons over the last you know, couple months or so. So I just don't know where the leadership is really going to come from. It needs to be broad-based. And I think these mega cap techs are going to need to have to participate because going back to the highs in July, it was Microsoft. It was Apple that led us off the highs down 10% from those highs. And those stocks you know, outperformed to the downside versus the major indices. So I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like, and Tim said this, he started the week off and said this, that the leadership that got us to these highs, got us back to these levels, is likely going to be the leadership if we are in another bull market that are going to continue to lead us. Because I don't see all that other stuff making up for what these companies can do, you know what I mean, in the economy, but also in the stock market. Speaking of Tim, Tim's back and can speak for himself. <laughs> How exciting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where you lost me, um, but, but uh, thank you, Dan. And I, I'll just say this also, the dollar was another big part of the month. The dollar lost 3.5%. So um, not only does that have implications for multinationals, but it has a lot of implications for risk. So let's break this down then. Yeah. The next month, so into year end versus 2024 guy. I think given what we saw this month, it would make perfect sense to see a little bit of a give back early in the month of December, which starts tomorrow. That would make Logical would be logical. You might see then at the end of the month, you start to get that markup like we've seen. 24, almost by definition, has to be challenging. I think so much of this rally is predicated on bad news being good news and the fact that it gets the Fed out of the way and actually gets some cutting early next year. And again, it's to be careful what you wish for, because I don't necessarily believe that's going to be a good thing. And you mentioned small caps briefly. I think they employ north of 65 percent of this people in this country employed by small, medium sized businesses, most economically sensitive. They're starting to feel the pain. If you listen to any of these conference calls, you can hear it. The unemployment rate starts ticking up. It's not going to be great for them and then subsequently not great for the Russell, which isn't great for the economy, which theoretically should drag down multiples in the S&P. That all makes sense. You can paint a very dark picture, and it seems like a very, it seems like an intelligent picture of how to organize, you know. And and it's a picture that was painted also a year ago. Yes. Yes. Right. 100%. Yeah. Right. It still hasn't come to fruition. Although the Fed did do quite a bit of lifting during this last year. So that, that, and and still in the face of it, the market did okay. I think that what you're saying makes sense to me. I just don't know that... The market is going to care about mm-hmm. anything but rates. That the Fed is gone is just a, you know, that's the, the market. Put, but why? But why? You know, like, think Maybe about this. It should no, be but think lo- about this. In, in July, August, the 10 year got above 4% for the first time in a very long time and went straight to 5%. And now it's back at 4.35%. Okay. So, like, literally, the economy didn't have a whole heck of a lot of time to deal with the 10 year there. I know mortgage rates, you know, like moved up in this or whatever. But the Fed funds rate hasn't moved since July. Okay, you know what I mean? And that felt like a bit of a blow off to me in in 10 year yields. And so I think it's more likely. 
likely that rates stay higher for longer until, and if you go back to 2007, if you go back to 2000, when they paused on their rate hiking cycles, they paused and everyone thought the same thing. Everyone thought, well, the Fed's done. And when they start to lower, if they're able to lower, then that's going to be good for risk assets. But it wasn't because when they had to start lowering to some of the things that Guy is talking about, they had to lower really aggressively, right? And so I'm not like, I don't want to sit here and try to say there's some calamity that we can't see that's coming. But make no mistake about it. What happened in March was a calamity in the banking sector, but the Fed came back to help out. And that really sparked a rally that I think got a lot of folks, a lot of folks offsides about what was actually happening, what was countering QT. So, you know, I, I don't know what's lurking out in 2024, but I just know history from rate hiking cycles. And we were just talking, Guy and I, to Mike Wilson a little bit ago from Morgan Stanley. And he thinks what a lot of investors get wrong is that the pause in an inflationary environment is very different, okay, when, when, you, start, um, when you start lowering. And we still have inflation. Even though these inflation readings are coming down, they're still up year over year, and especially after the year that we had in 2022. Well, if you were to say, what is the one thing I'm most afraid of, Mm -hmm. which is we have not addressed this issue of out of control spending in Mm -hmm. the United States, right, by the government. And so we saw that phenomenon of huge expected, right, QRA, that was just mind boggling. Then the next one, the cadence was better. And so bonds further out the curve did better. It wouldn't be in any way surprising to see that be a real issue coming up next quarter. Because if you think there was an overhang in terms of bond issuance, imagine what is to come. Yes, right. 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 That's my number one fear. Yeah. All right. Well, the stock market rally may be on borrowed time. Our next guest sees a significant rebound ahead in the benchmark 10-year yield. Market forecaster Jim Bianco runs Bianco Research. Jim, great to have you with us. We were just saying how maybe it's all about rates. And if that's the case, then this is bad news for investors who are bullish for long. Um, you're saying 5.5% is where we're headed on the 10-year. Yeah, I was on with you a month ago and I said, you know, the 10 years going to five and a half percent and it's been a terrible month for that call. But I'm still there at five and a half percent, say, in the first half of 24. And the reason is I don't think we're going to have a recession. And I think that the inflation rate is bottoming somewhere around three percent. So if you've got two ish to three ish growth in the economy, which is what it's been for the last five quarters and projected to be in the current quarter, and say three on inflation, that's 6% nominal growth. I put a little fudge factor in there and I got five and a half percent on the 10 year note because the 10 year yield should somewhat approximate where nominal growth is. So that means that the economy uh, interest rates should probably bottom out here in the next month or so and continue to move higher. What does it mean for stocks? I heard you guys talking about this earlier. I think the biggest problem stocks have now is there is an alternative. There is an alternative in five and a half to five and a quarter money market funds. Dr. Jeremy Siegel just finished a new edition of his book, uh, Stocks for the Long Run. And he says over the long run, the stock market should over many, many years give you an 8% return. Well, if I could get five, five and a half or so in a money market fund, I'm getting two thirds of that with no risk. So the stock market's really got to do something better than average to get people interested. And all we've seen it do so far this year is get people interested in AI because if you take the AI stocks out of the S&P or the S&P 493, they're collectively up three and a half percent this year or less than cash. And I think it's not because the economy's bad. I think it's because the competition of higher rates is a problem. So if rates move up in the first half of 24, that hurdle is going to be bigger for the stock market. Is a backdrop to your call on for rates to go to five and a half percent that the Fed 
is done, Jim, and rates go higher anyway? Yeah, I think the Fed is at least done. I don't think that they're going to be cutting rates. Uh, I'll point out that it's been almost 35 years since the Fed has cut rates with core inflation above three and a half percent, and we're at four percent right now. So unless there's a serious deceleration in core, I don't think they're going to cut rates at these levels. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's talk in the first half of 24 of one more rate hike, just one more. But that's just one more. But I'm really more emphatic about the idea that I think that all the rate cut talk is a little bit premature. The idea behind that is interest rates, you know, the the Bill Ackman real rates at two or two and a half percent is going to be punishing for the economy. I don't see that. I think the economy can handle two, two and a half percent real rates. And it did before QE and will now. And that's why I don't think the Fed will see any urgency in having to cut rates, despite those seemingly high real rates. Jim, you talk about this. It sounds like this is a rates going higher is a good situation for the economy for all the reasons you just stated, the move to five and a half percent. But does something break on the move to five and a half percent? I mean, servicing the U.S. debt at five and a half percent It's a much different environment than where we are now. A lot of things can happen that are bad on that train back to the train north of 5% on its way to 5.5. 100% agree. Uh, uh, Ben Bernanke in 2019 said economy expansions, which we're in now, or no landing as we like to call it, don't die of old age. They're murdered. And some murder weapon has to show up, whether it's COVID, a spike in gasoline prices or crude oil or a financial crisis, or some unknown event comes through and murders it. So yes, there are potential murder weapons out there, and we can't predict those. But short of a murder weapon, I don't think you're going to see that type of breakage of the economy, at least at this level. You point out about higher interest costs for the U.S. government, and that's true, and that is an issue, that as interest rates go up, the U.S. government has to pay higher interest costs. But on the other side of the equation, businesses are improving their financial position because of this, because more businesses are seeing an increase of interest income over interest expense. Their their cash that was earning them zero is earning them five. And as a group, businesses are better off because of higher rates, because of those cash flows from income, than they are being burdened by those expenses. Now, it differs from company to company, but they're a big offset to the government right now in terms of they're benefiting from higher rates where the government isn't. Jim, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Jim Bianco. Tim, do you think something breaks if we get to five and a half percent? Sure. Uh, And we're starting to see signs of this in private credit. Uh, I think there are places in the economy where you do have corporates that are highly levered and don't have the same access to capital and I think have been feeding on, feasting on, and have business models that don't work in in an interest rate environment at five and a half. Um, I, I think Jim's right on a couple things. And if there's three components of what took rates higher, um, those three components, at least right now, haven't changed at all. And, and I, I think rates, long rates go higher as well. Uh, again, you're talking about inflation that maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's obviously come in. We had a nice PCE today, but, but it, it, we're still well above. And, and services uh, dynamics and the cost of services, Jamie Dimon said this on the deal book uh, panel he was on. It was fascinating to hear that. I mean, you know, the bottom line is certain things I don't think are going to go a lot lower from here anytime soon. Uh, the central bank uh, lack of buying 
buying of our Treasury market continues. And yes, we have another quarterly refunding announcement. And there's no question um, when your interest expense has gone from a couple hundred billion, and I know it sounds like a lot, but it's gone to about 600 billion uh, for, for our government. That's a big deal. And I think that's something that over time, it's why I love gold. It's why some of these long-term charts, look, 15 years ago, we sat on the show. We had a lot of really smart people come on our show and tell you that the Fed was, was going to, you know, free money was going to be the end. And the minute they had to pull it back in, it was going to be a disaster. Well, it didn't happen overnight and it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but there are trends here that I think have changed and are not reversing. And they include long-term interest rates. Now let's get to Tesla. The EV maker delivering its first cyber trucks in front of a packed house at the Gigafactory in Texas. This is Elon Musk entering the event, driving a cyber truck onto the stage to raucous cheers. The 45-minute live stream was filled with Muskian hyperbole. Elon calling the cyber truck, quote, our best product, saying it is faster than a sports car with more utility than a truck. He also showed it can withstand machine gun fire and high-powered arrow attacks just in case you're in trouble. Uh, Tesla shares extending their slide in the after hours. Let's get uh, more on this launch and the pricing from Phil LeBeau. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, this may be the first time that we've ever heard the name Al Capone used to sell a truck when it is introduced. But that's what Elon Musk does, and that's what he did this afternoon. You saw some video when he was driving into the event. They delivered about a dozen cyber trucks today. These were the first people who are taking ownership of these trucks. The base price, by the way, starts at basically $61,000, but those aren't delivered until 2025. No, I think the ones that were delivered today, I think these were the fully loaded Cyber Beast versions. That's just my guess at this point. We don't know that for sure. The top price on those, just under $100,000, $99,990. You mentioned the shooting a gun a machine gun into the side to show that the stainless steel panels are bulletproof. There it is. They also shot a Glock into the side. And as Elon would say, you know, it kind of has that vibe. If it's the end of the of, of all times, if it's an apocalyptic time, you want to have the cyber truck. Maybe that's a good selling point as well. By the way, the towing capacity, 11,000 pounds. The payload capacity, 2,500 pounds. In terms of electric pickup trucks, this has widely been expected to be a market that will develop quickly over time. Really hasn't so far. Through the third quarter, Rivian's R1T is the best-selling electric pickup truck, just ahead of the Ford F-150 Lightning. And there you see the GMC Hummer pickup. It got a lot of fanfare when they first started introducing it. Super Bowl ads, LeBron James. It's a niche vehicle. Really hasn't done anything. As you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that their delivery guidance, Melissa, is for 1.8 million vehicles this year. They'll deliver a few more cyber trucks. They're really not going to move the needle in terms of deliveries, certainly not this year and not expected to next year. If they hit full production as they expect to in 2025, It'll be about a quarter million annually. And that's if they hit full production. Melissa? The truck really does feel like it has sort of a Cormac McCarthy, sort of the road <laughs> apocalyptic nature to it in terms of being bulletproof and, and the kind of car you want to be in if you have to survive sure. the end. Um, in terms of the pricing, I think it's interesting that it's between the R1T um, and, and the Ford F-150 Lightning. Does that matter? Are these really considered competitors, or is this so niche that it just sort of no, stands on its I own? Wouldn't, I wouldn't. I say this is this is a complete niche. Look, uh -huh. hats off to Tesla because you want to make a polarizing vehicle. You don't want to make just another ordinary-looking pickup truck. 
If they did, I'm sure they would sell them, but I'm not sure that it's what Tesla needs or wants at this time. They need the Cybertruck. It starts the conversation, and Tesla is targeting that 20% of the the pickup truck buyers who are lifestyle buyers. They're driving it around in cities or in suburban areas. They're not really using it to move things around. They're using it to make a statement, a a style statement. And that's exactly what you get with the Cybertruck. All right, Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. I feel like you're chomping at the bit. What are you talking about? about? (laughs) So the biggest trick the devil, Elon, ever pulled was convincing just people who don't know. It's a quote. Baby. Oh, okay. All right. uh, oh, convincing baby, people, baby. Qu- convincing yeah, okay. people who would never buy an EV to buy an EV. Think about that. Okay. So if you're buying, if you're a lifestyle buyer of that cyber truck, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like most of those people are not buying EVs. They're not in the market. Are they not? Are no, they they're in the market. Tesla fans? They're aren't in the market. Well, they are. They're his Elon? fans, but yeah. that's the trick that he's pulled. It's Genius. I'm, I'm saying it's absolutely genius. Okay. So like, okay. So now let's just look at the numbers. So last year they earned uh, $4 and seven cents. They had a 25 and a half percent gross margin this year. They're going to maybe do $3 and 10 cents on an 18 and a half percent gross margin. The auto margins are lower. Okay. So next year, um, all this stuff better really happen, right? Because they better be able to actually raise prices again. They better be able to get efficiencies for some of these, um, you know, new products and the like here and get those margins up again, because if they don't, and the margins continue to languish down here or go lower, okay? So revenues are supposed to grow next year by 20%, but earnings are not going to get back to peak, okay, unless margins obviously continue to go up. So, again, if you're just thinking about this as a car company, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, that's how, I mean, that's how we look at stocks. Isn't that how you look at stocks, Karen? Like, like, or is it just the cult around him and the trick that he was able to pull getting people who normally wouldn't buy EVs to buy EVs? Well, are you saying that none of the other businesses have any value? No, I don't know what the other businesses are. I, I know that Adam Jonas upgraded the stock a few months ago. Okay, here's another thing. Okay, we talk about relative performance all the time. This stock entered the S&P 500 three years ago. You know where it entered at? The same price it's trading right now. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm just saying. So you know what I mean? Like, it actually hasn't performed particularly well over the last three years. And so. But as a trading vehicle... It's been amazing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it went up to, what, 400 plus. The yeah. range has been amazing since, since it entered the S&P 500 has been immense. You could have made a fortune. So that's the vehicle, fortune. the trading vehicle. is the really trade. Yes. Yeah. That's the vehicle. <laughs> Karen, breaking it down. <laughs> yep. As she does. Coming up, Force Awakens shares a sales force surging in the back of results. How strong cloud demand is driving the action next. And speaking of earnings, we are watching Ulta after our shares are on the move. After reporting results, we got the details on that quarter straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Salesforce floating on cloud nine today. The company's third quarter numbers topping estimates as its restructuring efforts continue to pay off. The software name leading the Dow and the S&P today. Its gains adding to the stock's already monstrous run this year, now up almost 90 percent. Salesforce still down 18 percent from its all-time high hit two years ago. But uh, take a look at that run just this year, Guy. Today, the move, I thought, was to 240. This move then subsequent to 250 is sort of puzzling a little bit, although with month in and everything we saw in the markup, as to Karen's point earlier, I guess it makes sense. The quarter was fine, and actually valuation is somewhat reasonable, especially the fact that now they're seemingly focused on cost. With that said, it traded five times normal volume today. You have to believe with now the gap that's been created to the upside, you're going to get an opportunity to buy this cheaper. For the past three quarters or so, revenue growth has been about 11 10%. It's going to be... 10% in the fourth quarter. They're cutting back a lot, including on sales and marketing. They've even launched a buy-your-own-software kind of thing on the Amazon Web Services marketplace. Is this a company that is poised to reaccelerate revenue growth, though, at this point? What do you think? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, how about it, people? I mean, like, listen, the way that I saw about 15 stocks like this gap up to new 52-week highs this week after earnings, and, you know, again, um, you know, it just seems to say something about investor sentiment and where they want to be positioned. And if you think this stock is a laggard and it's growing, you know, double digits earnings and sales and it's trading at 26 times, I mean, there was a time where people thought that was expensive. I don't think they think that's expensive anymore. Microsoft at 33 times not expensive anymore, I guess. I did see they filed a mixed shelf this afternoon. Mm. I don't know. I mean, why not? You always should, I guess. But um, I mean, I don't know. You know, what was interesting. There was a, a Brent Thill interview. I don't know if you saw it. He was he was talking about he thinks they can do much more, mar- much higher margins that they're really Mark- a, wow. that they've got a lot more to do. I was sort of surprised with how uh, bullish he was. I don't own it. I haven't owned it. I haven't looked at it for a, a long time, but that was some impressive because it was up yesterday during the day as well right on this coming up the auto strike may be over but ford is still throwing on their hazards the billions of dollars of labor <laughs> deals costing them and the full year profit loss in the rear view details next and we're watching alta after hours the stock is jumping after results so could the name be a good primer for your portfolio we'll debate that that's <laughs> funny live from the nasdaq market site in times square back right after this From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing out in November. To remember, the Dow rallying more than 500 points to a new high for the year. The S&P up four-tenths of percent, notching its best month since July of 2022. And the Nasdaq closing in the red, but still up nearly 11 percent for the month. Shares of Ford dropping 3 percent after the automaker slapped an $8.8 billion cost on the auto workers' labor deal. The company also cutting its full-year profit view due to lost production during the strike. And some after-hours movers to mention. Semi-stock Amberella jumping despite an earnings miss. 
price in Ulta also higher after reporting a beat on the top and the bottom line. Karen, I know you watch Ulta very carefully. Yes, I do like Ulta. So interestingly, they started November $100 lower than where they are now. Wow. Which is kind of amazing. So this, this PE of the stock is lower than it has been in a very, very long time. They are growing more slowly than they ever have been, so I understand that. But I think it was just way, way overdone. This quarter was very nice. It wasn't, I mean, this reaction is a lot. But I think the reaction is, wow, we were just too conservative on the name, mm. right? This, this below market multiple for a company that maybe should be something higher. And I think the story of Estee Lauder was weighing on it. Right. And they came out with a very different outcome than Estee Lauder. So there's a lot to like about here. Um, you know, the margins were better. The guidance was a little better. Maybe they beat that. Um, the loyalty program was up. That's a good thing. So I just feel comfortable owning it here at a higher multiple because I think people have taken the story off the table of, you know, maybe they've totally lost their way, which is not at all the case. Coming up, oh, snap. Shares of Snap and Pinterest moving higher after a bullish analyst call. How you should trade the social climbers next, but first, more drama at Disney. Nelson Peltz looking to make some changes, starting with a few board seats. What CEO Bob Iger had to say on the proxy fight when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Triumphs Nelson Peltz reigniting the Disney proxy drama today. The activist investor requesting multiple board seats after Disney appointed Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman and former Sky CEO Jeremy Derrick this morning. This move coming after Disney CEO Bob Iger addressed the potential for a proxy fight at yesterday's DealBook Summit. There's a qualification level that is required to sit on the Disney board. And the board will make, the, the, not me, the board makes decisions about who's qualified and who isn't qualified to be on the board. And if Nelson officially requests a board seat, I'm sure the board will go through a process to determine whether he is, or whether he should have a role on the board or not. CNBC's Julia Borson has more on that and news after hours of the dividend making a comeback. Julia. That's right, Melissa. Disney just announcing it is reinstating its dividend, paying 30 cents per share for the second half of fiscal 2023, payable January 10th to shareholders as of December 11th. Now, all this comes after Nelson Peltz's Tryan, which beneficially owns approximately $3 billion of stock of Disney, saying that he will seek two or more board seats. He said that in the that the addition of James Gorman and Sir Jeremy Derrick, quote, will not, in our view, restore investor confidence or address the root cause behind the significant value destruction and missteps that this board has overseen. Disney responding, noting its track record of delivering long-term value and its $7.5 billion in cost savings, $2 billion more than its original target, adding that the board's appointments of Gorman and Derek just yesterday reflect a focus on strategic growth initiatives, the succession planning process, and increasing shareholder value. Disney also flagging that Ike Perlmutter owns 78% of the shares that Peltz claims a beneficial ownership of. Warning, quote, Mr. Perlmutter was terminated from his employment by Disney earlier this year and has voiced longstanding personal agenda against Disney CEO Bob Iger. So the next moment to watch is Tuesday. That's when the window for board nominations opens. We may hear from Peltz about who exactly he's proposing for his board seats that he's looking for. Melissa? So the point being made by Ike Perlmutter is just that, he, that there's bad blood, but he owns the share so he can vote or, or push for whatever he wants. It really doesn't 
do anything for the, to the argument that he's a major shareholder pushing for change. Exactly. He is a major shareholder. But what Disney is doing in that in that note, in that comment in their press release is they're saying, don't forget that this is someone who was fired. He has bad blood and he doesn't like Bob Iger. And so they're sort of saying that it is perhaps about sour grapes, though. Yes, of course, he does own those shares. Um, so so just some interesting personal dynamics behind the billions of dollars uh, of, of shares and, and everything at stake here, Melissa. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Tim, what's your take on all this? Uh, you know, Bob, Bob Iger likes to run the ship as he likes to run it, including culture and you know, a lot of friendlies on the board, clearly. Uh, if you look at Disney's stock performance in November, it was one of those stocks that actually did really well, again, relative to, to Disney's performance over the previous three years. So um, is there momentum in the stock? You know, we, we got some sense in the numbers that you've seen some not only bottoming in, in the DTC business and actually some improvement and possibly even in the profitability of that at some point. But it, it gets back to valuation for me on Disney. And there's a lot of different ways you can value it. Typically, you're valuing the, the experiences part um, somewhere in the 15 to 16 times. You put some type of a sales multiple uh, streets anywhere from four to five times on the, the DTC business. And then you're left with the rest that, that, that comes very, very cheap, um, certainly inside of you know six times EBITDA. That's the story for me on Disney. It's hard to see where a lot of growth is coming from. The DTC business and the trends overall coming out of this quarter for all of the media companies I thought were better. And I think they're getting better at Disney. Coming up, Jeffrey says it is time to snap into these two stocks. We'll break down why they see something interesting setting up here. Plus, crude crumbles. What is black gold seeing red today? The trades and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Snap and Pinterest topping the tape today on a Jeffries upgrade. The firm boosting both stocks to buy sees more than 20 percent upside ahead. It's been a strong month for Snap and Pins. Snap up 42 percent. Pinterest over 35 percent. Dan, the S is a top mm-hmm. performer in your acronym. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'll just say this about these two stocks. They're both at 52 week highs. They both come a very long way in a short period of time, but they're both still down a whole heck of a lot from their all time highs, 75% or so. I'll just say this about Snap. When you look at their margin structure, mid 50s, they're still not gap profitable. They're only expected to grow revenues like low teens. It's just not that compelling versus a Pinterest, which has much better margins. I think, you know, almost 80%, and they're growing revenue faster and they are profitable. So to me, if if we're playing would you rather are we playing would you rather no, we are now. i'd say pins um you also like pins yeah where were you on july 14th 2022 at about 517 probably here exactly that's exactly <laughs> where you were i mentioned that because that was the day the news broke that elliot had an eight percent stake in pinterest i think the stock closed at 17 was trading north of 20, and we talked about it then. Now the quarters have gotten better since. The margin expansion this quarter is remarkable. Now analysts are getting on board. I think I saw a $48 price target with somebody. I mean, I think it's got a 40 handle for sure. You stay with Pinterest. By the way, my Pinterest page No, your Pinterest is page is unbelievable. Like a, it's a time okay. capsule. Just it look is at a time that. capsule because it has not been touched since the day you that's did it. That's Karen Feinberg right there. I think that's yeah. Dan. I was there. Look at that <laughs> That's you, Melissa. Look yeah. at look at Tim. 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 Yeah, and Who's that's singing? like Bieber, I think. There's your Bieber. Iron Man. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a time oh. capsule. Anyway. All right, up next. 
Up next, the demand boom for uh, energy, a record production boom here in the States, too. This is OPEC is trying to cut the flow of crude. How will all this impact oil prices and oil stocks? Top analyst Paul Sankey is in the house to give us his take right after this break. More Fast Money in two. Do not miss a CNBC special report, Charlie Munger, A Life of Wit and Wisdom, remembering the late legendary investor. That is tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Meanwhile, WTI reversing sharply today after hitting its highest level in more than two weeks as investors remain skeptical that today's announced OPEC plus production cuts of nearly 2 million barrels per day will come to pass. This is U.S. production hits its highest level in history. For a closer look at what is at stake for the energy market, thank you, Research President. Paul Sankey joins us now on set. Paul, good to have you with us. Um, I don't know why you're not CEO of this thing, but... Uh... Mm. <laughs> of, of Sankey Research? Yeah. I'm everything. I'm the janitor, I'm the CEO, you name it. Um, so it was strange because this, this proposed cut wasn't mentioned in the final communique, and then some other countries independently come out with their own plans for cuts. I mean, that's sort of what was not convincing about what they wanted to telegraph to the markets. Yeah, I wasn't convincing. I mean, it's already a problem when OPEC's cutting, and they've already cut. And as you say, they've got a huge problem with U.S. production levels. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and what you've got to remember is the U.S. industry is planning on 60. And they're delivering this, you know, 13, 14 million barrel a day type number, which is just incredible. So it's a real problem for OPEC. And if you look around the world, Guyana, there's maybe some, some concerns there at the moment. But basically, Guyana, Canada, Brazil, which was part of the OPEC conversation today, are all delivering growth. We're only two or three years from, you know, $40 oil in 2020, negative oil in the U.S., and, and yet we're seeing this just extraordinary performance from the industry. And it's a, it's a problem for OPEC. So if OPEC cannot bolster this price or put a floor there, what is the floor in your view? That they flood the market. I mean, you know, we've more or less been saying potentially Saudi needs to just flush this thing out. And um, in that case, Saudi would then take some of its spare capacity most people think Saudi capacity is around 11 million a day, 11 and a half million a day barrels. Um, they're doing about nine at the moment. So they could just add two and a half million barrels into the market for six months and just flush it. The M&A around the space has been remarkable. We talked about it. Exxon, Chevron. We hear from Oxy. Clearly everything's in play. Marathon Petroleum with a whisper. PSX. We talked about Elliott taking a stake. I think that stock's at an all-time high. So some of these downstream plays are starting to show their... They're metal. Thoughts on that? Well, they consolidated, right? And that's really what the upstream industry is doing. So you need, I'm actually just going to dinner with a, a group dinner with the CEO of Chevron. One of the Chevron lines has been we've got too many CEOs per barrel of oil. And so what they're doing is very aggressively consolidating with the rest of the industry to make it just more efficient, you know, economies of scale. If you look in the U.S. now, you only have three major refiners, mm-hmm. right? And, and as you mentioned earlier, Shell has pulled out. You know, BP's much smaller, et cetera. The big guys are a lot smaller as well. So the industry's consolidated. It's, it's really performing well. And the Elliott uh, letter that you referenced to PSX was really about the underperformance relative to Marathon Petroleum, where uh, Elliott took significant action to, to make it more efficient and more shareholder friendly. And now they're essentially turning their attention to PSX. There's not that many deals that can be done still in U.S. refining. There's just not that many refineries left. We have like 6,000 upstream companies. I mean, a lot of them obviously are tiny, but there's still major potential for deals. And as you mentioned, the latest story is the OxyJet flying to Omaha uh, around the idea that they're going to buy CrownQuest, the, the 10000000000 billion-ish play that's a private in the Permian. So we could get another deal. It was in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. We could get a, another deal tonight. 
So this flush, what does that look like? Um, and it's, it would theoretically be for a, sh- a short amount of time, but the impact on energy stocks, I would imagine, would be pretty immediate. Well, it's, 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 it's precedented. It's happened twice okay. in the last 10 years, right? 2014, Saudi said, if you don't cut, we're going to flood. And they flooded in 2014. Oil was about 110 and had been over 100 for four years in 2014. It basically went in a straight line to 50. The Thanksgiving OPEC meeting, it was 75 when Saudi announced the flush. Uh, We went down to 50 in January, bounced, and you hit 27 the following year in February of 2016. And then, of course, you had the COVID flush, which was truly crazy, where oil went negative. So, uh, you know, that didn't work out great for the price. Um, so, yeah, it could, be, it could be pretty dramatic. And you've got to take the price down to the level at which you stop the U.S. growing. And I'm telling you that they're planning on 60 and they're growing. So you'd have to probably take it below 60 for sure in order to really change behavior. Now, of course, the rig count is falling, uh-huh. but production's not, which tells you there's productivity gains. So it's, it's a tough one. Um, you know, it really is. It's, it's a naughty one for OPEC, especially as demand is more than likely rolling over here. Right. Paul, thank you. Thanks for stopping by. Run to your dinner. Thank you. Mike Worth. Uh, Paul Sankey, everything at Sankey Research. Uh, Tim Seymour, um, would you be worried about a flush? Uh, Sure, of course, because, again, we've seen those correlations before. The one thing I'll say, and European integrated are a lot more efficient than even the U.S. ones, he said, are efficient. If you look at Total, TTE, and and Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, um, they break even after those big divs at around $40 oil. So Hmm. I still think for investors in oil companies, if you pick the right ones, there's, there's great opportunities here. Up next, final trade. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. International paper, the number one container board producer in the world, is actually pushing through prices as are its competitors. I think the stock's going to continue to move higher. Karen. Yes. I, even though I like Delta, I love the valuation even here. But wait three days. A lot of analysts are going to come raise, guide, raise targets. Damn. Yeah, I've been bearishly positioned in the U.S. dollar via the UUP. I want to flip that thing around and get long in here. Hmm. Guy. Magic last night at the Garden, Mel, huh? Magic. The way there were two goals in the third period, box back. Yeah. We had that great conversation, you and I. I know. MPC <laughs> continues to trade well, Melissa Lee. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.